But uh, today's uh, today's uh, passage that we're going to look through is, is really very tied to last week. So let me catch you up, okay? So Jesus, um, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. We're kind of familiar with that. Next week is Palm Sunday. It celebrates that, that triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. He rode into, into Jerusalem on a donkey. He did it very intentionally to fulfill uh, prophecies that were given. And, and he is, in a, in a, in a very uh, bold way, he's openly declaring himself, particularly to the people of Israel, but if anyone had eyes to see, he's openly declaring himself as the promised deliverer, the promised king. And he rides into Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is he looks around the temple, he goes home, and then the next day he arrives again at the temple, this, the religious spiritual center of the people of Israel. He arrives and he's looking for fruit. We talked about that last week. And there's a lot of metaphor going on, but he's looking for fruit. What kind of fruit was Jesus looking for? He was looking for God's people to be doing certain things, to be, to be producing certain kinds of fruit. What was he looking for? I'm summarizing last week. Jesus was looking for two things. Kind of based on this mashup quote of um, Isaiah and Jeremiah that Jesus put together. First, what's the quote? You can go a little closer, Jack. Um, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. This is what Jesus says as he's in the temple and he's like flipping over tables and he's chasing cows and and, uh, you know, letting doves go. And, and uh, he's just wrecking the place. And he's quoting this Isaiah-Jeremiah mashup. And we saw that what Jesus, the kind of fruit he was looking for was this. He was wanting to see if his people were making space for people who were far away from God to connect with God. And that's based on the first half of the quote, House of Prayer for All Nations. And he's, he's looking for that. And the second part, he, he's looking to see if his people are actually loving others or living out God's desire in their whole lives, like 24-7 in their daily lives. Are they, are they, are they people of integrity? Are they living God's, uh, you know, what they, they're kind of doing at church, as it were, at the temple? Is it actually making a difference in their lives? Are they loving others daily so that other people experience the goodness of God in their lives and Respond to him. That's the kind of fruit Jesus was looking for. Making space for others, people far away from God to connect with God and and seeing if people are loving others in such a way that they're experiencing God's goodness. Jesus was very disappointed. Not only did Jesus not find this kind of fruit, he actually found his people actively resisting God's desire for them. Pushing out the Gentiles. Remember we talked about that, this house of prayer for all nations. The only space in the temple that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were able to come and worship had been filled up with this market. Had been filled up with the money changers. And they had actively been pushing them out. Not giving them any space, any room for them to connect to God. These people who were far away. And he saw that they were oppressing one another. They were, they were, they were coming to the temple and thinking, we did everything right, everything's cool, but their whole lives were not reflective of who God had called them to be. He was very disappointed. And so Jesus' temple action, you know, doing the table thing, flipping the tables, driving on animals, was sandwiched between this cursing of a fruitless fig tree and then at the end this withered fig tree. And we saw how what he was doing in the temple was like an enacted parable like a prophetic parable that Jesus was acting out, foretelling the judgment that was going to fall, particularly in AD 70 when Rome surrounded and crushed them. And I just jammed an entire long 
long sermon into one paragraph. So you're, if you're intrigued by that, I encourage you to listen online or maybe even ask Jack uh, for a CD. That is if you missed last week. Um, so Jesus, he makes this big scene at the temple. That, that's what goes on. And what follows this scene at the temple is a series of heated conversations between Jesus and the religious leadership. Today, we're only going to look at the first interaction. It's the most directly tied to the event of, of the temple. And we're going to look at it. And it's going to really challenge us, I believe. You see, what we're going to witness is how resistant the religious leadership was to Jesus and his expectation of fruit. They were very resistant to him. And we're going to see how this resistance led them to destruction. And I think we're going to be invited to consider as a church and as Jesus followers, or even as people just exploring who Jesus is, we're going to be able to consider what about those times when we find ourselves in similar places where we're resisting what Jesus wants from us. Jesus' expectation that we would live for him. Jesus' expectation that we would produce fruit. Jesus' expectation that we would, both personally and as a community, be making space for people far away from God to connect with God. The resistance me I have to Jesus saying, look, I don't really care if you look great on Sunday. I want to see that you're living out the life I've called you to live 24-7 in the relationships I put you in, your family, your workspace, your colleagues, your friends, your coffee shop buddies, your sports friends, whatever it is. I want to see that you're living out my love for others so that they experience my goodness through you and are perhaps even drawn to respond to me. So it's going to be a challenge. We're going to dive in. I think there's uh, the text. If you don't have a Bible or there isn't one in front of you, the text is printed. The, the story from two kind of stories from Mark today, sections from Mark are printed inside your bulletin. The program you were handed, so pull it out if you'd like to follow along. Is that true? Is it in there? Great. I thought it might be helpful today. So we're going to dive in at Mark chapter 11, 27. They, as Jesus and his disciples, arrived again in Jerusalem. This is like the day after Jesus caused all the trouble in the temple, okay? And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. You see, when Jesus showed up at the temple the next day, everybody's on pins and needles, right? All eyes are on him because they're worried that he's going to do something again. And and the religious watchdogs, they come on. They're like, okay, go over, surround him, and and let's, let's deal with this now. So they come to Jesus and they say, By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Now, this is a very interesting question, this authority question, because if you've been traveling with us through Mark so far, you know that the authority question has come up quite a number of different times. It's been a central question, actually, that Mark, as he's written his stories and as we've seen interactions, it's a central question that people have had when they've interacted with Jesus. And Jesus began to heal people, as he began to drive out demons, as he began to forgive, as he began to show people what the kingdom of God actually looks like. He immediately faced opposition from religious authorities, even from his own family. And what emerged? This Jesus, we saw time and time again, has the authority over evil spirits, has authority over sickness, has authority over death. This Jesus has authority over the law, authority over the Sabbath. He has authority over even the winds and the waves. 
This Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And everyone's just blown away by this because who can forgive sins but God alone, right? That's the question they ask. He has authority to call people to follow him, to leave their work, leave their vocation and and follow him. And they do. And he has the authority to welcome people into this kingdom of God, people that have been excluded, people that have been ignored, people that have been looked down on. Jesus had the authority to include them as never before. And overall, ringing out loud and clear through the whole gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus acts as the one who has the authority of a king. And not just any old king, but a good king. Because he always uses his authority to bring goodness and healing and restoration into people's lives. Jesus always uses his authority to bring goodness, wholeness, and restoration into your life. And it's good for us to remember that because there's times when Jesus speaks with authority to your life and says, you know what? I've got a plan for you. And it doesn't involve her. Or it doesn't involve him. And we want to resist that. And we have to remember at that point that, oh, right. When Jesus speaks with authority into my life, he always does it because he's got a better plan for us. He always does it because he loves us more than we can imagine. He always uses authority to bring goodness and wholeness and healing into our lives. So whether he's speaking to you about your job, whether he's speaking to you about an addiction, whether he's speaking to you about your money, whether he's speaking to you about the way that you look at other people, Jesus always speaks with authority that if you will listen, it will bring goodness and grace and healing to your life. That was a side note. Sorry. But these religious leaders... They don't see any of that when they look at Jesus. They see a wannabe prophet who is causing trouble. They see someone meddling where they shouldn't be. They see someone in their area of authority, the place where they're in charge. And so they basically say to Jesus, where do you get off? I mean, how can you charge in here like you did yesterday? You can't do that. You can't just swing in here and start flipping tables over and causing a big ruckus. Not in this place. Because... We're in charge here. This is our temple. This is our house. And you have no authority here. That's what they're essentially saying. By demanding from Jesus, where do you get your authority from? So how does Jesus respond? Does he just lay it all out for them to see? You know, here it is, clear as day. I'll just tell you. No, he actually diverts them with another question. Jesus is pretty good at this. He does it lots of times. So he, he, he replies back to the story. Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Now, he's going all the way for, for us back to the start of Mark. John showed up on the scene. He's kind of this wild, crazy, hairy guy living out in the bush. And he's, he's telling people they need to repent through baptism so they can get ready for what God is going to do next, which is Jesus. And he's pointing people to Jesus. He's saying, there's someone coming, and he's getting them all ready. And everyone knew this guy was a prophet, but he had problems with the religious leaders too. So, so Jesus says, okay, how about this John guy? John's baptism. This authority that John exercised. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Well, they discussed it among themselves and said, if, they, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? Because they didn't. But if we say of human origin, they feared the people. For everyone held that John really was a prophet. And so they were stuck. They couldn't give an answer to Jesus. So they they answered him, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus won't answer them directly. 
Jesus knows they're not coming to him because they want to come under his authority. They're not coming to him because they're intrigued by what he's doing. They're not coming to him because they've been struck to the heart and realized they've missed it all along and they want to turn to God and they want to produce the kind of fruit he wants them to produce. That is not why they're coming and asking where his authority comes from. They're coming because they're trying to trap him. They've rejected him already. If Jesus had come right out and said, oh, I'm doing these things because I'm the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and I've been sent from my Father to deliver a message of judgment to you that if you don't repent, you're all going to be destroyed. He wouldn't have lasted probably the day. As it was, he hardly lasted the week. But is that it for Jesus? Does he just kind of leave them guessing and wondering what's going on? No, far from it. They want to know where he gets his authority from? He'll tell them. They've already decided they, they, they've rejected him, but they want to somehow trap him. And it's that rejection of him that's going to be their undoing. And so Jesus focuses on that. He focuses on their rejection of him. And that's where he goes with this next little story that he tells. Jesus then began to speak to them, the same religious leaders. Begin to speak to them in parables. And we've seen this before in Mark. He's used parables in his teaching. And, uh, but it's been a little while since he's, since he's done this. He is now going to tell them a story. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Now, have we heard this before? Last week I had Kaylee and Rebecca read for us a passage to start off from Isaiah 5, and that's exactly where this is coming from. And these religious leaders would have picked up on it immediately, that this is the story that Jesus is not only alluding to, but basically almost quoting. From Isaiah 5, 1 and 2, this is, this is the words. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it Excuse me, with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. He's expecting good fruit, right? Then he looked for a crop of of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Remember, a vineyard is a common way that God's people were depicted by the prophets, by Jesus. And in Isaiah, a little later, he gets really explicit and says that's who he's talking about. But now Jesus twists the plot. He changes the focus of the story. Rather than emphasizing the bad fruit or the lack of fruit, which is what Isaiah 5 emphasizes, and it's what has already been emphasized in the story before with the fruitless fig tree, Jesus now focuses on these tenant farmers who've been given stewardship of the land. He says, this guy planted the vineyard and he did all the stuff to get it ready. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And he now steps into new territory, emphasizing the tenant farmers, and he's going to answer their original question of who gave you this authority through this very stinging parable. So, rented out to tenant farmers, moved to another place. At harvest time, he, the landowner, sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Are you getting the picture here? They do not want to give this guy any of the fruit from his own land. Okay. 
He had one left to send. A son whom he loved. Ding, ding, ding. He, he sent him, last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Who is Jesus talking about here? But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. In some ways, Jesus retells the history of the prophets leading up to Jesus. That over the centuries, whenever God's people got off track, God would send servants, his prophets, to, to call his people back to right relationship with God. When they had got into idolatry and were, were going all crazy, he would send prophets to warn them and say, you cannot persist that way. Come back to right relationship with God. Or there will be judgment. There will be exile. He would call his prophets to go and to challenge his people when they were mistreating one another, when they were abusing uh, temporary foreign workers. I mean, abusing foreigners. And when they, were, when they were going and they were oppressing widows or orphans or when they were doing things to others in their, their own neighbors, they were mistreating them and they were living in such a way that weren't demonstrating what it meant to follow God or be in a right relationship with God. And he would have his prophets come and warn them to come back to him, back to right relationship with him. But God's people very often, particularly the religious leadership and the political leadership, the kings and the priests, would reject and deny and kill those prophets again and again, right up to John the Baptist and how they treated him and responded to him. Now, Jesus himself, when the Son had come, they were treating him the same way. This is the history that Jesus is telling in this little parable. Now, you might be wondering, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but I think it would be helpful for us understanding the story. This might be a little bit helpful. This whole deal of how would they think that killing the son would somehow gain them the inheritance? Why would they think that's, that doesn't quite work the same way in our day? In that day, possession really was nine-tenths of the law, and, and this landowner probably had been gone for a long time, maybe several seasons, we're not sure, um, waiting for harvest, because harvest often was a longer period of time. And these tenants, it seems like these tenant farmers over the years had come to see themselves as the true owners of this property. They sort of forgot that they were the stewards and begun to view it as theirs. And so, um, possession being nine-tenths of the law, when, when they start seeing these servants come, by that point, they figured, this is our land, man. Like, we've been here a long time. Who are you? And, and the way they treat these servants that come are evidence of the fact that they, they no longer view their owner as having any authority here. And that's how they mistreat the servants. When the farmers see the son coming, they likely assumed that the son was coming to claim his rightful inheritance, which would have indicated to them, they thought, that the father had probably died. So at this point, they think, wait a minute, if the father's dead, then if we kill the son, the land would become essentially ownerless at that point. And because possession is nine-tenths of the law, and we've been here a long time, guess who would get the land? They would. And so they hatched this plot to kill the son, thinking that once he's dead, we'll just continue on as we've already been living, as the ones who have true authority and true ownership of this land. Of course, this is all about Jesus and the way particularly the religious leadership has been rejecting him. That's who the tenants represent, represent and Jesus represents the son. It's crystal clear. Everyone knows it. That's exactly, they understand that's what's going on. And so then Jesus asks the central question 
and then proceeds to answer it for himself. He says, what then? You know, now that this, these tenants have killed all these servants and now killed the son, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Nothing? Just say, oh, that's too bad. What will he do? Jesus answers, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then he quotes from Psalm 118, which if you were with us a couple weeks ago, that's the psalm that people sang when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. It's from that same psalm, Psalm 118. Jesus said, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, you kick that rock off to the side, but that's the very rock around which God is building his new kingdom. It happens to be Jesus. There's even a little play on words in there where the word stone and the word son rhyme. And he does it in purpose. The Lord has done this. And it's marvelous in our eyes. He quotes that. Haven't you read this? Don't you see the person you are rejecting is the very person around whom God is building his new kingdom. And do you realize that if you reject me, Jesus says, if you reject the very stone around which God is building his new kingdom, you are Well, then the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the elders, looked for a way to arrest him. Get this. Because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But, we've already seen this a couple times, they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. What's Jesus doing here? And I, you know, you're probably wondering at this point, and how in the world does that connect to my life? Well, I had to work on this for a bit to try to understand how it might connect to our lives. Bear with me here as we continue to figure this out. So, let's first just get what Jesus is doing here. First, Jesus tells them where his authority did come from. He says, look, my authority came from God himself, the, the owner of the vineyard. He, it's it's a, little bit, a little bit indirect, but it's there pretty clearly. That Jesus, when he tossed around the temple and he, he called God's people to wake up and to repent, he acted as the son of God. He acted as the son of the vineyard owner. Come to reclaim his father's vineyard and to call the people of God to produce the fruit and to live the way they were called to live. So Jesus answers that question. I come with the authority of the son of God. But then Jesus gives them way more than they asked for speaking directly of the coming judgment that would occur if they did not repent. The religious leadership or the the tenant farmers who were not willing to accept the authority of Jesus, he wanted to understand that their rejection of Jesus, their rejection of him, would lead directly to their destruction. And within the story, using the language of this parable, God coming to kill the tenant farmers and give his vineyard to others, was fulfilled in the coming of the Roman armies in AD 70 when Titus and Vespasian surrounded Jerusalem for several years and then destroyed it. Foreign armies were the normal way that God brought about judgment on his people all through the Old Testament. Jesus is going to make this even more explicit in the next chapter, Mark 13. But for now, the religious leaders get the point. They know he's speaking it about them, even against them. They, they knew what it meant, but rather than receiving this prophetic story, this prophetic warning as an opportunity to repent which is what it was. Judgment is always, a warning of judgment, is always an opportunity to repent. Rather than receiving as that, it fueled their rejection of Jesus even more. Remember, this comes right on the heels of the fig tree temple thing, and we need to hear all this together. 
We talked last week how Jesus wants us to be a church that produces good fruit, which we already defined as making space for people who are far away from God to connect with God and loving people 24-7 in our daily lives so that they experience the goodness of God through us and hopefully respond to Him by following Him. That's good fruit. And I believe, I talked about it last week, I believe that Jesus, when He inspects the fruit of the Erickson Covenant Church, that He's thrilled with what He's finding. I believe that. I believe that Jesus looks at us and says, Yes! You've been making space for people. Yes, you've been figuring out how to integrate my words into your lives and they're making a difference in your relationships and in your family and the way that you work. And so he's looking at the Erickson Covenant Church. I believe and he's going, that's awesome. Look at that fruit. That Jesus looks at us and goes, wow, I'm so proud of the Erickson Covenant Church. Look at them. It's awesome. I really do believe that. But I think the challenge is there for us. That Jesus is asking us, are we going to continue to be a church that makes space for people who are far away from God to connect with God? Are we going to be a people that says, Jesus, we want to produce your kind of fruit. We want to be available to you so that we become more and more the kind of community that's reflective of your kingdom in this valley. And so here's the challenge of today, I think. That sometimes when Jesus begins to press us, when he begins to challenge us, when he begins to provoke us, when he begins to remind us of who he's called us to be, both personally and as a family and as a church, we resist. And it's this resistance that can be in my own heart, can be in our families, can be in the life of our church, this resistance to to really be the people God has called us to be. This resistance can surface. And I think it's right here, as we look at these tenant farmers, as we look at the way this religious leadership team responded to Jesus or reacted to Jesus or, or rejected Jesus, that we need to hone in on for just a few moments and see what Jesus is saying to us. Because churches, do you know this? churches can actually resist the leadership of Jesus in their lives. Do you know that? They can. We can. Churches can resist producing the kind of fruit that Jesus wants them to produce. Churches, believe it or not, can resist making space for people who are far away from God to connect with God. Did you know that? Yes, they can. And as churches, we can even resist taking what God is doing in our lives and letting it integrate through our whole lives so that everyone is experiencing, whether it's our kids at home, whether it's kids at school, whether it's people we work with, whether it's people we see throughout the day, that people, we can resist God's desire to work through us so that others can experience His goodness through us. We can resist that. How does that, how does that happen? Where does this resistance come from? Come from? I think the first thing is, is, is that we first forget Who's actually in charge of the church? Who's actually the boss of our community? Of the Erickson Covenant Church? Of the church universal? We can forget that this church, Erickson Covenant Church, does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. We can, we can forget that it doesn't belong to people who've been here a long time. It doesn't belong to anyone who came here last week. It doesn't belong to elders. It doesn't belong to youth. It belongs to Jesus that this is the church of Jesus, that he is the boss, that he's in charge around here, that the Erickson Covenant Church is under the ownership and management of Jesus Christ, and he is the one who's leading. 
But we can forget that, right? We can begin to think, well, he's not in charge around here. I mean, we wouldn't say that, of course, but we can act like it. We can forget that he's the one in charge of our church. And what happens next is, like those tenant farmers, we begin to strut around like we're actually the ones in charge. This is my farm. I can plant whatever trees I want to plant. They don't produce the kind of fruit I want. I mean, they look pretty enough. We can keep them. If, 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 it's, if it's not quite going the way that we originally thought, that's okay because guess what? We're in charge around here. We're the ones who have the authority. That my Christian life is mine to manage, mine to control. I'm the boss of my own life. Even though I say I follow Jesus, how it actually works on a daily level, the decisions we make, the relational decisions we make, can be really directed by you. Because we've forgotten that it's Jesus who's really in charge around here. So we forget who's in charge. We begin to think we're in charge. We're the boss. And then what happens, and I think this is critical when we think about the church, is that we settle into a life that really suits us. A life that feels cozy. A life that feels comfortable. Whether it's your own Christian life, your own family life, or the the life of our community as a church, we can begin to think, you know what? This feels really good. We can start guarding against any outside intrusion, you know? Kind of not really making space for people who, let's be honest, might make it a little awkward or a little strange or, you know, I kind of feel good here now. I kind of know people's faces. I, I kind of feel like I fit and, 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 and I want to I wanna kind of keep it that way. We, we feel a tremendous amount of ownership over our community, but not ownership in a good way. We've forgotten that we're stewards. And we now are starting to arrange life, whether it's our fellowship life, whether it's even our worship services, whether it's our ministry life, whether it's our family life, to arrange it in such a way that really makes us feel safe and comfortable. And that's when Jesus shows up and starts prodding us, maybe through a word of Scripture, maybe through the example of a friend. Maybe, maybe, maybe you actually you know, start going to a, a, a Bible study group or, or a life group, and all of a sudden Jesus starts prodding and pushing and asking questions and expecting fruit. And we can feel resistance in us, saying, I don't know if I want to go that way. I don't know, why, I don't know if I want to do that. And I've seen it, and you've seen it. Churches and leadership teams and pastors and elders and parishioners, we can begin to resist the leadership of Jesus in our lives and in our church. We don't put it that way, of course. Resistance is always dressed up in beautifully spiritual language with scriptures to back it up, usually. Something about the church being all about worship and not really about reaching out. I've heard that one. How about this one? We just need to equip one another and then the ministry will happen. That's another one people often use to try to guard and wall and not really make an effort to make space. Whatever it's put, however it's put, it boils down to a basic rejection of Jesus' call for us to be a fruit-producing community. In other words, a community that makes space for people who are far away from God. Have I said that too many times? You know what I'm saying when I say fruit? That we don't want to make that kind of space in our lives and in our church and in our, in our families. That, that, that we don't really want to love others in that sacrificial way so that they begin to experience the sacrificial goodness of God in their lives. We resist it. And the result of that kind of resistance is churches just die. They shrivel. And you can see them. You can see churches that have resisted the leadership of Jesus, they die. Or they might be zombies. They might look like they're alive. But when you get in close, they kind of stink. And, and, and you think, that thing's challenging. You put that thing out of its misery. 
Because if churches resist the kind of fruit that Jesus longs for us to produce, if the church, we as the church, and I not, do not just mean the building, you understand that, right? We as the community of God, if we resist the leadership of Jesus in our lives, we begin to die. Whew. Now, am I hammering too much on this? I think that I thought about why do churches resist? Like, what does that look like for us to resist producing this kind of fruit in, in, in our lives or even in our church? I thought of a few things, and I maybe won't go through them all because I thought a lot of a lot of things. But I think one of the things is that we kind of tell ourselves we don't actually want things to change very much because we're comfortable with the way things are, Right? We're comfortable with the music. We're comfortable with the seating arrangement. We're comfortable with the ministries. We're comfortable with the pace. You know, if it ain't broke, don't. Right? And so our orientation is we kind of like things this way because it fits us. Forgetting that it's probably because we think we're in charge. And, and so anything that comes and begins to suggest we should do things differently, we should change the way we're doing it, we should reach out more, we should rethink some things that we've never even suggested rethinking, we feel a resistance because we don't want the things that we like to change. Another one I think is a, a, a great um, source of our resistance is that our needs are already being met. Like, I feel good. I feel like I'm, I'm being fed. I feel like I've got some good connections. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm growing in my faith. Again, you can really dress it up, right? I feel really good. I feel like my needs are being met. And so if we, if we do this thing over here, if we change the way we do that, well, what about my needs? What, what, what if I don't have my needs met anymore and we begin to resist? We think, well, this is perfect for my kids. I don't really want to start reaching out to those kids because they might mess it up for mine. Another where, where resistance happens is that as we begin to imagine ways that Jesus wants to lead us as a church, we realize very quickly, I mean, we realize that on Thursday night, we realize very quickly, oh shoot, this is going to cost me. Right? I mean, honestly, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you financially. It's going to cost you in time. It's going to cost you. Because following Jesus is costly. Grace is free, but man, Following him will cost you everything. And so we begin to realize, wait a minute here. If I understand what I think I understand they are saying, I'm going to have to give more. I'm going to have to spend more time. I'm going to have to open myself. I'm not sure I want to give anymore. I'm kind of comfortable with my 20 bucks a month. Or I'm kind of comfortable with that, that Bible study group I have. I'm kind of comfortable with what I've committed. And I frankly don't want to give anymore. That bleeds directly over to the area of gifts. When we begin to understand what Jesus wants us to do, we may have to actually ask the question, what are my spiritual gifts and how am I going to use them? I heard a podcast the other day. Have you ever heard this? Have you ever, in reference to cars or tools, um, it was a a podcast by Terry O'Reilly, Under the Influence, love it, uh, on um, the sharing economy. Wonderful. But it was this side story talked about um, high idling capacity. Have you ever heard of that? Something that has high idling capacity? A, A car that sits in a driveway, 23 out of 24 hours a day, for example. That would be high idling capacity. Just sits, does nothing. Do you know, I love this. A, the average household drill, not yours, Brad, I realize. But the average household drill. Do you know how many minutes an average household drill in North America is used in its lifetime? 13 minutes! 13 minutes! That's called high idling capacity. So before you run out and buy a drill, Borrow it. Oh, that was the mess. Anyway, uh, okay, I digress. But it made me think, 
How many of us have spiritual gifts that have a really high idling capacity? Because you keep them tucked away in a drawer, tucked away in a shelf, or you've just never taken the ownership, in a good way, the responsibility to say, what are my spiritual gifts? How can I pull them out of the drawer and actually use them? As we've talked about before, spiritual gifts are given to you for one purpose and one purpose alone, to see the church of God grow and be built. That's the only reason you're given spiritual gifts. You're not given spiritual gifts to feed yourself or make yourself feel good. The only reason we're given spiritual gifts is to see the church grow and produce the kind of fruit that Jesus wants us to produce, right? And so I think a lot of us have tools with a really high idling capacity. And Jesus is saying, you better pull those tools out. But when we realize what this means, we feel resistance. I'm not sure I want to do that. I'm not sure I want to stretch that way. I'm not sure I want to teach those kids. I'm not sure I want to help that way. I'm not sure I want to pull that gift out and start using it. We have a high idling capacity. Jesus is saying, come on, I've given you the gift for ministry. Let's get it out and get it used. Get it, get it used. Uh, maybe we want church. We want this gathering. I think of the Dan and Roberts quote connected to this directly. We want our experience here, like Sunday morning even when we gather. We want it to be a safe place where we're just kind of loved on. And I I think we are that, actually. And I think that's great. But you know what? We also need to begin to view our time here as a time when we're, like, revved up. We're amped up, we're equipped, and we're sent out. So that what Jesus is doing in our lives here, what Jesus is doing in our lives when we connect during a weekday for prayer or when we're in a Bible study group, what he's doing in our lives is something that's meant to generate and change the way that we live in relationship with the people we work with day in, day out. The people we teach the little people we teach, uh, the way that we interact with people on the job site, whether they're clients or, or business partners or employees or employers, the, the way that we interact with our spouses and our friends, that Jesus is wanting this transformation to be a 24-7 reality in our lives so that our church, his church, is expanding and growing and his fruit is being you know, produced all throughout the week so that people, whenever they run into you, and they don't even know you're connected to a church. But whenever they run into you, they begin to go, you know what, there's something, I'm just the way that person's giving their time to me, the way that they're loving me, the way that they're listening to my story, the way that they're offering to help me, the way that they're loving me. It's like I can feel God's goodness through them. And they may not be able to say that initially, but that's exactly what they're beginning to experience. So we see church, yes, I love it that we're a safe community. We should be. But we're also a community that's designed to help you so that you're sent out during the week. You're you're sent out during the day. And as we gather, we worship, we get reoriented, and we get reminded of what Jesus is all about. And then we're out there in the community living the life that God has called us to live. I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm going to leave it there. I had more reasons why we resist, but I'll just leave it, okay? Oh, no, I'll skip the last one. Here's the, the final one we resist. I think when we begin to get a picture of what Jesus wants to do in our lives, I think when we get a picture of what Jesus just might, in the craziest of notions, want to do with us as the Erickson Covenant Church, we realize things could get crazy around here. Things could get uncomfortable. Things could even get dangerous. That, you know what, if Jesus actually did that in our community, we won't be the same anymore. It won't be the same church anymore. I won't be the same person anymore. My family won't be the same family anymore. And we're not sure we want to go there. We're not sure we actually trust, hear it, hear it, go full circle. We're not sure we really trust the leadership of Jesus enough to let him lead us to those places. And so we resist. Now, 
I keep looking at the clock because my watch is broken. I told you before, don't let your preacher have a broken watch. Um, notice I've not actively replaced it. Um, you know, I think our challenge here, I really believe that what Jesus has been doing in our lives, what he's been doing in us as a community, is the fruit, fruit is being produced. Like, hear me right. So this is a strong challenge. It's a challenge because I Jesus is saying, you know, Erickson Covenant Church, fruit is being produced, and that's awesome, and I'm proud of you. And now, will you trust me? Will you trust me to lead you into the future, into a new place? Will you actually let me lead you into a place that you've never been as a church, that you've never been in your personal life, that you've never been as a family? Will you trust me to lead you there? And I think our response is, yes, Jesus, we are following you. We are going to trust you. That's our response, right? We say, I don't know what that means. And I acknowledge my own you know, heart level of resistance to change. I get that. But Jesus, you know what? At the end of the day, you're the one in charge around here. You're the one in charge around here. And we're going to trust you as you lead us. And so as a way of responding today, and I want to, I want to ask that this next song is not just a, just the song, but that this next song, which is, what's the next one? It's, All to Jesus I surrender, right? You can come start that song. That this song is our way of saying to Jesus, you know what, Jesus? You are in charge around here. You're in charge in my life. You're in charge in my heart. You're in charge in my family. You're in charge in this church. And we are coming to you today as a community to say, Jesus, we are going to surrender our lives to you. We're going to be the kind of community that produces the kind of fruit that you love. The juicy stuff that just drips off the chin of Jesus as he bites into it. Yeah, that kind of fruit. That that's what Jesus longs to see being produced from us as a community. So as we sing this next song, All to Jesus I Surrender, let it be your prayer of response. Let it be our prayer of response. Saying, Jesus, wherever you're going to lead us, we are going to follow you. You're the one who has authority over us and you're leading us to a good place, but you've got a plan for the people, the men, the women, the children of this valley, stretching throughout the Kootenays, stretching throughout the world. You've got a plan for them and you're calling your people to make the kind of space in their lives so that people who are so far away from God can turn around and begin to experience his goodness and come to know all that Jesus has for them. That's what Jesus wants. So let's sing. In response to that, all to Jesus I surrender.